0: Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with author Karen Rinaldi, who is the senior vice president at HarperCollins Publishers and author of the new book, The End of Men. How are you doing today, Karen?
1: I'm doing very well, David. Thank you.
0: I'm glad you can call on in uh, from your office in New York, where you have enjoyed a banana shake this morning, as we learned. (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) Great. Well, happy to have you on right now. Um, To kind of get us started, how did this book come into being?
1: Um, It came into being um, quite a long time ago. Probably I started it uh, 16 or 17 years ago, believe it or not, when I was a uh, mother of young children and commuting to my job as a publisher, uh, in New York, I was living in New Jersey at the time and thinking a lot about how many of my female friends, my my women friends were the breadwinners uh, of their family, holding on a job, having babies. Um, and we supported each other and got through it and had pretty full, awesome, but maddening lives. And I thought, there's no representation of these women and characters in any media, not in TV, not in film, not in fiction. And I wanted I'd start thinking about these female characters and I started thinking about them. They became sort of alive for me and I started taking notes about them and telling their stories. And then, you know, it just turned into a novel over the course of a couple of years. I mean, I sat down intentionally to write it as a novel, probably a year after I started thinking about it, Um and then it went into the drawer because as a publisher uh, and an editor, I didn't have the bandwidth really to, to do what I needed to do for the book uh, to keep it going. And uh, I was busy um, with uh, the two little kids and commuting the job. So I, I waited and then it became a book, um, a published book um, after the movie Maggie's Plan by Rebecca Miller. Um, came out, which was based on one, basically one quarter of my book was Maggie's story. And, and Rebecca made that into a film and it made me sort of pull my book back out of the proverbial uh, uh, drawer and, and take a look at it again and then, and, you know, actually revise it, which is what I did over the past couple of years.
0: Well, interesting, and you mentioned the movie, which is which is super fun, uh, starring Julianne Moore and Greta Gerwig of all people. Uh, how did that feel yeah. to have something that you wrote represented in film?
1: Oh, it was just a blast! It's <laughs> so much fun. I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a writer, so I didn't have to really do much for it. So I got to at a very privileged position of watching uh, Rebecca and her team make this happen. Uh, she and I developed the screenplay together, and that took a few years. Um, she could tell all, all this is um, years and <laughs> years in the making. Um, but yeah, so I, I got to, you know, work with her on the screenplay. And then, you know, she made it into a movie and I got to, she, I was very close by as it was all happening. But I, I had the great seat of um, watching it from afar and just thrilling.
0: Well, uh, Karen, let's talk about the book a little bit now. Uh, you talk about your characters and their association with this maternity lingerie company. And I I was wondering how you came up with that idea and just, you know, how that that kind of went forward.
1: Um, Well, um, in full disclosure, I had thought I was pregnant and I couldn't find nice underwear to wear. (laughs) It's really what happened. (laughs) And it drove me crazy. And I thought, how is it possible that, millions of women get pregnant and then can't find, you know, bras and panties to fit. I mean, this is really what my brain went to. And so I just created the company that I <laughs> wished existed. In fact, I always wanted to start that company yeah. uh, and, and never and never did. But um, I think people that since I thought of it, since that happened, whatever, 16, 17 years ago, I think there are now more <laughs> options. But You know, back in uh, the late 90s, there were no options, and it frustrated me. So that was all. That was wish fulfillment, more than anything else.
0: That's not a bad thing. That's part of why you're right, right? You know?
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Try to make things happen. Give somebody else the idea so that they can execute.
0: No, exactly. Exactly. But it does bring up a good point of, you know, this is not like a... There are very serious topics that go on in your book, but you have a really kind of funny sheen to it. But uh, this this part in particular brings up these ideas of like taboos of pregnancy and sexuality. And uh, I was interested in, you know, how you explored that, if you want to talk about that.
1: Sure. Um, Interestingly, uh, and and coincidentally, I had a piece that ran yesterday in the New York Times about motherhood um, that garnered quite a bit of support and derision. Um, because I think I touched a nerve and I was talking about motherhood is not a sacrifice, mm-hmm. uh, but something that is a privilege. And so I I think a lot of what I had found in becoming a mother was that the cultural assumptions that are made around motherhood. Um, there's a certain martyr complex. There's a certain, you know, once you're pregnant, you belong to the world as opposed to having your own agency, that you have a very narrow line to walk in how you behave and what you eat and what you drink and where you go and and, and all of a sudden you just realize that there's there's like the burden of the world comes on you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, what happens when you you know, I create women who are mothers and professionals but who behave according to their own compass, whether you whether the reader or anyone agrees with their actions or not, how harshly do we judge um women um, and especially women once they become mothers and I have uh, I found that it does again it touched a nerve in a in a big way because I think that, you know, one of my favorite sayings is that men are men are given a four lane highway and women are given a, a tightrope. And uh <laughs> sometimes we what happens when we fall off and what happens if we take over the four lane highway? And that's what I was really testing by creating these characters and exploring the issues of sexuality and maternity and um, motherhood and partnerships uh, with men or without men, um, you know, fidelity um, and and all of those sort of hot topics and 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 have women who behaved not necessarily the way that we. Uh, want her to, or have seen, let's just say, the way that we have seen in media, um, mostly in
0: media before that. I can see that, the kind of the, uh, it's interesting, you know, talking about those things, and you have a lot of characters that are not these, you know, uh, stereotypes, and trying to find a balance, and, you know, in the Liz Lemon line, you know, wanting to have it all, and seeing if they can make that happen, and how difficult Mm -hmm. that is. Yeah. Uh, and these standards that are put upon them. Uh, it's really interesting that you get to write this book about this thing and take it these characters into these places.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, fun. It's like definitely where I go. <clears throat> it's where I spend a lot of my thinking and a lot of my nonfiction writing is really in exploring these things. And by the way, the having it all thing, I, I don't, I mean, I think that becomes the... Um, the go-to phrase, but Mm -hmm. I think have it all, like who has it all? Nobody has it all. Men don't have it all. Women don't have it all. Nobody. uh, To me, that's not the question. The question is, what do you want and how do you prioritize and make the space for what's most important to you without listening to the noise of others telling you what you should be making space for? That to me is the key question. So it's just you know, you definitely have to give up some things to have other things, but that's just life, right? So I, I like the idea of having to make choices. And then, you know, in my book, clearly some of my characters are struggling with those choices as they, you know, as they might, but, you know, they're definitely privileged women, you know, uh, who have choices. And that's really what I did. It's like, okay, we have choices. You, you Now what? And you find that it doesn't necessarily mean it's um, clear yeah. that you still have to spend time figuring out how to make, and then you stumble and you make choices that maybe you know aren't good ones, but that's okay too. You
0: know? Yeah, because you're you're still exercising that that agency right there. Um, I like what you said about the you know wanting it all that that that's this idealized version that that doesn't really exist for anyone. No, nah, really it
1: important. doesn't. It's crap. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, I agree. That, that's great. Um, uh, talking about your, yeah, I read your op-ed on motherhood, which I thought was super interesting. I would love if you know our listeners got a chance to read that as well. But you also did a uh, another column for for the Modern Love uh, ongoing column, talking about uh, past relationships and your relationship yeah. to them. Uh, and you had a quote in that uh, you were talking to your mother, who had said, uh, "You know, why do you have all these these failed relationships, or how do you feel about them?" And you responded with. You see them as failed. I told her. I see them as successful but finite, and I think that is so important. I'd love if you can elaborate on that.
1: Um, Yeah, that was a that was a real conversation I had with my mother, Um, and it made me think about it. And I came out with the response before I even really considered it. And I realized, wow, that's actually how I feel. I mean, I loved, you know, have loved and been devoted to, you know, every you know person, every partner I've had in the past and I don't regret one of them. And I, I feel like you grow, hopefully you give to, you know, something to your partner and then you gain something and you grow through it. So I think breakups sometimes are inevitable and I think that's okay. I don't love, I, I don't love the pathologizing of the shifting of relationships. And, and by the way, I'm, I, I adore my, my second husband. I'm, I, I really love and when well, my first husband died and, and my I look back at all those relationships fondly. So I, I think we tend to demonize the people that we are with and then break up with. And I don't understand that. If there was love there once, why does that love necessarily dissolve? I mean, there are hurts and betrayals and listen, things go wrong, God knows. I mean, they have gone wrong in in my relationships as well. But mm-hmm. I don't I don't love I don't like to look at that as Regretful. I don't really believe in that regret and looking back and saying should have, would have, could have, and going no, that's where I was, and there was some beauty there, and I am going to take that beauty away and go forward and hopefully do it maybe better next time or learn how to be a better partner or how to ask for the things I need. So that's really where I was, what I was pointing towards, and with that comment.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's important, and uh, it's hard for some people to get to that place. Uh, was it hard for you to arrive there?
1: Uh, I, uh I mean, no. I, I mean, I, it would be false modesty to say that it was. I have always felt that you enter as a as a consenting adult. You enter into relationships, and you definitely can enter into ones that throw you for a loop or that you know you get hurt from. But again, I feel like you have to have. I guess. I guess what I what I I feel in a lot of this is that you you need to have agency or t- or accept your own agency in these. And so I always felt that even when I was younger and even in some difficult situations that I got myself into, I think, well, it was fifty you know, part of it was me, you know what I mean? I mean, I wasn't, you know, this relationship wasn't forced on me. So it wasn't so much hard one as it was. Um, it took years to be able to articulate it and understand it and to embrace it wholly. So that would be the thing that took time and was more difficult but the instinct I think, was always there, and you know, relationships you know I say relationships are messy, you know, they just are yeah and and i I don't know one that isn't, whether they're successful or they they they, they last a long time or they don't you know, show me one because maybe the I just haven't seen it yet <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay, and that's okay too, I mean that's part of you know everything worthwhile has its other side, yeah.
0: No, no, that's exactly right. Uh, super interesting. Um, to kind of pivot a little bit, I, uh, you've been working in the publishing industry for, for a time, for quite a bit now. Uh, yes. I am interested in you knowing how the sausage is made, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, did that make it easier or harder during the editing process for this book, working with an outside editor?
1: Oh, um, I uh, probably easier, just because I understood the language between, and I also know... You know, I was, I was dying to be edited because I, you know, it, it, it's such a great thing to have another person look so deeply into your own work and comment and care whether you get it right or not. And I've been doing that for so many years. And that conversation is a very intimate, um, really, uh, I don't, fulfilling exchange. Um, and I actually wrote an essay uh, about this as well. And I learned, I understood even more. Uh, interestingly, I understood more of what I do as an editor by being edited, you know, after all these years it's like, you know, I felt very humbled by it. You know, I just, you know, it's my job. I do it. I, I edit other people on the weekends at, at night on my vacations, and you don't edit in the office and you edit on your own time. And you just do it because it's part of your job. And I didn't really think much about it. It's like this is my obligation, this is my job. I take it seriously. I'm going to give it my full attention. But when it was being done for me, I felt very humbled by it and grateful. And thought, I can't believe somebody else cares this much about my work. And then I went, <laughs> and then the other side of my brain said, "But Karen, you've been doing this for decades. Why did you?" Fix-? And I was like, "I don't know. I never really thought." I would have this argument with myself, "Well, I never thought about it in that way." So it was easier to listen and hear it because I I understood what the editor was, was doing and what time and effort she put into it um, and had great deal of respect for that. Um, as far as publishing goes, I think it's, you know, publishing is one of those things where it's, it's you think it's going to change everything and it changes, you know, everything and nothing. It's like, I, I really believe you write because you, you're you know, you write for different reasons, but publishing is is crazy. You know, if you get to put your book in the world, it's um, it's a it's a wonderful thing that you get to do. Um, but you, I don't, I know. Listen, there's a reason why I'm middle aged and I've been in the business for 30 years and I've never published until recently. And I just felt like I wasn't really. I've been writing for longer than I've been publishing, mm-hmm. but I really wasn't ready until now. And I think I think I needed to know be certain of what I wanted to put in the world, what my voice was. And I also understood publishing as something that wouldn't resolve my writing questions. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think people yeah. think of writing and publishing as the same thing. They're very different. So you don't solve your writing, uh, not problems, but your challenges and your questions by publishing. You actually solve those by writing and writing and writing and writing, 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 and writing, writing, and keep <laughs> writing. Yeah, the publishing is like, once you let it go, then it belongs to the world, and it's, you know, then it's out of your hands, in a way. Yeah,
0: you can see it in all its uh, glory or all its horror, right? What's that? Like you can see it in all its glory or all its honor, or all its horror, wherever you left it off.
1: Yeah, well, whatever, however you want to look at it, it's it's, you know, it's not yours anymore. Yeah. Once you put it in the world, it's no longer yours. I mean, everybody jumps on it for better and worse, and and, and, you know, I, I really saw that happen, you know, for so many years that I was, I was prepared for that.
0: Interesting. Um, what, in your opinion, makes a good editor? And as a kind of follow-up question to that, what makes a compelling story, in your opinion?
1: Ah, uh, okay. So, good editor. Um, the trick of being a good editor is that you have to sublimate your own ego and your own voice. Uh, for another. I mean, it's just absolutely necessary because you have to hear that writer and understand his or her intention and help them to do it better. And the only way you can do that is by taking yourself out of it, which is a very, it's the exact opposite in a way of what you do when you write. Because when you write, you have to dig very deep into your own voice and your own meaning. And then pull it up from your intestines, basically. <laughs> um, and so it's a, it's a, it's the opposite skill in some way. But there is um, a sense of listening and knowing who you're writing for, who you're editing for, who is your who do you. Who do you intend? Who do you, who do you who do you intend to read this, and who do you want to read it, and what are you trying to say? Mm-hmm. And then, what makes a good story? Wow, you know, I don't I don't even know if I could venture to answer that mm-hmm. because what you find as a, a, a you know as a somebody who publishes books is that you, it's one of those things like you just know it when you see it, and it might it, it often surprises you where it's coming from and what it is and. I have been pleasantly surprised so many times in my life. So as soon as you think you know something or you know what you're looking for, something comes out of left field and go, oh, I didn't know I was even looking for that. But there it is. This is awesome. And that means it's, it's literally, I always say the hardest thing for a writer and for a publisher is to pub- to write and to publish a book that people want to read. And I know that sounds flip, but it's not flip. It really is. That's hard write a book that people want to read. There's a lot out there to read. Yeah. If people want to read it. You go, that's the job. How that gets done is done differently by every writer in the world. And that's why it's hard because there's no formula. There's no guarantee. And that's what makes it awesome. I mean, that's what makes it, it's why I can get up and do this every day. My sons always say, mama, you're either, you're either, you know, reading, you know, editing or writing. And I don't even realize it. it's like, yeah, that's, what I do, and I'm always excited by it because it's always new and hard and a challenge, but also sort of a, again a beautiful privilege to be able to do all those things in your life.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's admirable, right? There to to have that. Um, that's really interesting. Um, to, to kind of bring us uh, a call back to the the first part of the interview, you talked about uh, when you initially wrote this book, you know, some 15 years ago, uh, mm-hmm. you didn't see stories like this or characters like this in novels mm-hmm. or represented. And I was wondering if you think that's changed since when you first wrote the book, and and how has it changed?
1: Um, I do think it's changed somewhat. I don't think it's changed enough, but I think, you know, women's voices have gotten stronger. I think female characters have gotten more more diverse. Um, You know, I I always said, one of the things I used to say is that, You know, Orange is the new black. I didn't and I'm sorry to say I did not read the book. I I did watch the series. Mm -hmm. I do watch the series. And those characters to me are like, Wow, somebody finally nailed the female character in all of her fierceness and beauty and complexity and moral ambiguity. And I thought, and the only way Somebody was brave enough to do that. Is that you had to put them all in jail? <laughs> <laughs> like, that made it okay because at least they're contained in a compound. And but that that I thrilled to it because I thought, wow, these women are all. I mean, what a what a what a cast and what a group of characters. And I was so. Excited by it, but I did have the idea. Yeah, okay, now we got to get them out. Now we got to do that, but we got to get them out of jail.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: So yeah. We're, we're going in the right direction. Um, Let's push, push it
0: a little further, a little bit outward, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there.
0: No, I think that's great. And, you know, uh, especially with your background working in publishing, uh, you know, at HarperCollins, there's been talk a lot about this idea of gatekeepers, not just in in publishing, but in, you see it in movies and music all across the board as far as pushing representation and, you know, providing a uh, multiplicity of voices there. Uh, I'm wondering what you think publishing could be doing better in order to provide for that.
1: Oh, publishing. So, um, we be doing better. You know, I've always brought to the gatekeeper uh, idea just because, you know, I come from the outside. You know, I did not go to an Ivy League school. Mm-hmm. I grew up, you know, working middle class in New Jersey to Italian parents who, you know, were, you know, you know, my father went to college at night. You know, if it were really, truly, you know, kept out, I wouldn't have been able to enter. And I think a lot of people, you'll find that there's a there's a false sense of elitism where a lot of people are just, you know, they, you know, work hard, they work their way through. People, it's, it's an incredibly earnest. This is so crazy to say, probably on the air even, but it's a very earnest business. People are dying to hear voices from other places and 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 publish them and get them out in the world. Um, there are the verities of publishing being a business mm-hmm. and so in order to pay advances and we are basically venture capitalists yes yeah. that's what publishers are so in order to invest you have to believe that there's a possibility of making money and on most books we don't but you have to try yeah. so then the question is are we just funneling stuff into you know the readers that what people want to hear but, but people want to read but really the best books the not best meaning the books that have the you know, that go out in the world in a very big way are books that always seem like they come out of left field. Right. They're yeah. not the, they're not the ones that you plug in besides the genre of fiction and stuff that, you know, has a, you know, has a different, you know, genre of fiction is a very d- different cycle, yeah. but just, you know, one-off books, you know, it's, it's really just the idea is just to get people writing, yeah. just to get them writing and, and get them putting their work out there, and and publishers are dying to find new voices, unique voices, and points of view. And remember, there's publishers like HarperCollins, and there's smaller publishers. So mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, Maggie Nelson writes, you know, The Argonauts, and you know, you know that book becomes a huge seller. And you know, big publishers wouldn't take it. The book is, you know, a brilliant writing. And I understand both sides. And yeah. guess what? A little publisher gets the win. And Maggie Nelson gets to win. So that's okay, too. So I just think it's like it isn't one idea. It's it's all of these people and all these different publishing companies and all these different points of view. But it tends to be really earnest. It's not cynical at all. We couldn't do what we do. We work too long, too hard. We spend too much time doing. I mean, basically, it's a calling, right? So you work morning, noon, and night. I mean, I worked all day Sunday. I worked all day the previous Sunday. You know, I would have rather been going out and doing something else, but I had a book to edit. <laughs> and when you do, you, you do it. And we want books that are working, that are going to reach an audience and stuff. But yeah, but then there's the business of it. And the business of it can be uh, misconstrued, certainly, by the outside world. And I understand why, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we're a business and we're here to stay afloat and to make some money so that we can keep doing
0: it yeah no that's interesting and you brought up that that stratification of the book industry in a way that you haven't seen in a lot with those smaller not even smaller but medium-sized publishers that are kind of filling out these gaps which is really interesting
1: yeah and it's, it's fantastic and that's always been true right you know you look at james joyce's ulysses right it was published by what, sylvia beach you mm-hmm. know i mean she was like a she was just a person who decided to print the book. I mean, so that that, there, that has always been true, and you don't want to lose sight of it. And, and writers shouldn't lose sight of it either. You shouldn't say, oh, I just want to get published by one of the big five or, or or bust. You know, no. There are so many great small publishers who are doing really good work, and that work still has opportunities in the world. And because of the way the you know the world works now, it's like. You know, you don't necessarily hope for a New York Times, I mean, you hope for a New York Times book review, but there are so few and far between. But there are other ways to get, you know, your book noticed, and yeah. it takes some work. And you know, but the, you know, the way everything is segmented, there are ways to sort of get in there, because and it happens. I mean, there is there are as many examples of books published by small publishers that go on to be some of the greatest influences and most important books, as there are of those books published by major publishers. So I just don't think it's like one thing across the board. I think it's, it's I think there are a lot, it's very, it's multifaceted.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, that, that's a really great view to have. I'm glad you got to share that with us. Um, I know we're running short on time. Uh, I don't want to keep it too much longer, but I uh, was wondering for a final question, uh, what is the last thing that you read uh, and what's next for you? What do you have coming up?
1: Um, what I'm reading right now um, is David Grossman's novel, Horse Walks into a Bar, because he's one of my favorite writers. Um, and so that's I'm in the middle of that right now. And I just, um, a very different thing, and I just picked up um, Brene Brown. And I've been reading a lot about women, a lot of uh, women in nonfiction, The Confidence Code by Katie Kay and Claire Shipman, um, reading a lot around women's issues and voices. And and so I'm doing a lot of that reading, so I've stacks of books. And then for fiction, I tend to pick one novel, and I'm only reading one novel at a time. But nonfiction, I'm reading many different books at the same time. And what I have coming up next is a book um, based on an article I wrote for the New York Times um, called It's Great to Suck at Something, um, <laughs> which is a, a kind of a philosophy that I have. And the, the piece has gone very, very wide and far, and I am finding that the response has been remarkable. So it is a um, it is a nonfiction book um, that calls for the practice of sucking at something, because it's awesome to not have a goal <laughs> or a reward in <laughs> mind, and just to be, and that magic comes out of that, which is definitely true. And I happen to suck at a lot of things, but mostly I I surf and I suck at surfing really badly, (laughs) but I'm very, very devoted to it and spend way too many hours uh, in the water over the last uh, 16 years. And so I have learned a, a lot of humbling lessons from it that actually do permeate sort of the rest of what I do. In fact, I think I can write and put my work in the world partly because of surfing badly for all these years has taught me lessons of not of getting rid of shame and fear and hesitation and all that stuff. <laughs>
0: Well, I love that. I'm looking forward to that then. It's
1: a very, it's a very different book at the end of that. It's I can of, imagine. It's like those are two poles of my, <laughs> of my, of my personality. But yeah, I, I, go all, I swing in very many different directions.
0: Hey, that's good. Multifaceted right there. Ah,
1: <laughs> I don't know if it's talent. It's just it's just where my, my brain
0: goes. Oh, Karen, this, this is great speaking to you. Thank you so much.
1: Well, David, thank you for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. It's great to talk to you.
0: That was author Karen Rinaldi, who is a senior vice president, HarperCollins, as well as the author of the new book, The End of Men. And that's the end of our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch us every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., Saturdays at 8.30 a.m., and Sundays at 1 p.m. All of our interviews are uploaded to our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash WRBH reading radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.